We're talking about all the different pathways, the sacred pathways to connect with God, to worship God, to, to draw closer to God. Because the way God wired us, each of us uniquely in our own way, is the way we best connect to God. And I'm, I want you to know that God connects to us in the way he has wired us as well. As a matter of fact, uh, I have so enjoyed the messages preached by our younger members of the staff over these last uh, weeks of July. They did a terrific job of bringing in insights and they took the role so seriously. Um, I, I appreciate what they've done. I hope you've given them a pat on the back and a thank you for the hard work that they've done. And I also hope that you've taken the chance to uh, take the assessment, this Sacred Pathways assessment. It, it won't take you long, but it may give you an insight as to what makes you tick and, and how you best communicate and uh, draw closer uh, to God. And so you say, well, what have we learned so far? Well, so far, we've explored the pathways of enthusiasts and the contemplative Christians, which to me seem to be sort of at polar opposites. You know, those who are enthusiastic, those who are contemplative may not be in, in the same ballpark from their style, but they certainly are in their sincerity. Last week, Sean reminded us of the role that tradition plays in our connection with the Father. Many of us draw on the traditions of our faith as, as a safe place, a guidance, a, uh, a structure to our worship and spiritual lives. We love the things that are familiar to us. And sometimes that traditional moment may be something from the past that brings back warm memories of important moments in our spiritual journey. We also learned about the ascetic last week who wants nothing more than to be left alone in prayer and personal worship. The ascetic values silence and solitude so that he or she can reflect on the Lord without interruption or distraction. And the ascetic is usually one who kind of keeps life pretty simple. Now I know what some of you are thinking. You think, well, <laughs> that's, that's all well and good, but I don't fit any one of those categories. Well, hang on. We're not done with the series. We're going we're to touch every aspect of life, and you'll see yourself in some of these things as we go along. Do not lose heart. You're here. And if you're like me, when you take that assessment, you'll find out that there's not, I'm, I'm not all one way. That, that there's a variety of these things that cross my pathway. And, and, and I've learned this through the years too, that, that at different stages and ages of life, different things are important. And so your spiritual sacred pathway at one point may not be what it is later in life. Uh, the, the things that were important to me 20 years ago may not be so important to me today. But there may have been things that I didn't even think about 20 years ago that I'm thinking a lot about today. And so your, your sacred pathway, your connection with God, I think grows and changes and, and varies with the passing of time. So today we're going to talk about a couple other pathways, which in my mind are more closely related than the other pairs that we've looked at. The sensate and the naturalist. And you say, what in the world is sensate? Well, the word comes from senses. And we're talking about the person who relates to God best with their five senses. Now, to one degree or another, that's all of us in this room. But there are some people who are much more in tune with their senses or their emotions. And since we've been created in the image of God, it stands to reason that we're going to relate to the Lord through those senses that he has given to us. Jesus said, as, in, as recorded in Mark 12, 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, Jesus was saying, use your whole being to connect with the Father. Every aspect, every sense, bring it in your love for God. The church, I think, throughout history has done a pretty good job of 
of really appealing to the sensate aspect of, of our sacred pathway. Many things that we associate as tradition in the church really began as a cutting-edge way of teaching about God. For instance, if I said something about stained glass windows, you would say, oh, that's, that's really old. That's a, that's a tradition in the church. But what, what you need to understand is that while it may seem traditional to us today, it didn't start that way. It was cutting-edge technology. Back in a period of history when so many people were illiterate, the church was able to create these masterpieces of art. They weren't just pieces of colored glass. They were stories. They were images of the life of Jesus. And for those who could not read, it, were these, it was the stained glass window that, that created an image in the mind of the listener and the seer so they could see in the window what they were hearing from the pulpit and those two senses came together to sort of lock in that image uh, as, as a kid my home church had uh, beautiful stained glass windows and some of those are still locked into my memory there was one of the windows that had Jesus as the good shepherd had a lamb around his shoulders Another one of the pictures was Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those are as clear in my mind today as they were when I was a child. They helped lock in these concepts of what Jesus was doing. So, you see, the church was, was good about that. Another sense, the sense of smell, was often impacted by the use of incense. Don't you know that certain smells that we have today remind us of certain important moments? And where else do you go on a regular basis that music and singing play such an integral role in our lives? I don't sing on a regular basis, you know, other maybe to myself, but not in a corporate setting unless it's here at church. But there's something about music and the power of music that impacts the emotions and the sense of hearing unlike anything else. Have you ever considered the fact that the highlight moment of our worship when we come around the Lord's table and we take communion, that God created that to touch all five of our senses. It's a very simple meal, and yet it is so utterly profound. We see the bread and the cup and how that bread corresponds to the body of Christ and how that cup corresponds to the blood of Christ and we're reminded of his sacrifice that washes away our sins. We, we relate it to the cross as we partake and that's all through our sight. There is the sweet smell of the grape juice and then there's the distinct taste of that bread and that cup. We feel the texture of the bread as we pick it up out of the plate and hold it in our fingers we feel the cup as we lift it to our lips. We hear the words of admonition. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the admonition that we are to take it in a manner that is worthy of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So when we meet around the Lord's table, every one of our five senses is being moved to draw closer to God. Isn't that incredible? So the person who is the sensate, the one who is in touch with their senses in God, pro probably will, uh, will be impacted by the second one that we're going to talk about this morning as well, and that is the naturalist. The naturalist thrills to God's creation around us, the things that we see and hear and experience in creation. Now, the naturalist will always feel at home and close to the creator when out in his creation. 
This should be no surprise. I mean, God's word opens in the theater of the universe and then moves to us to the stage of nature's paradise, this garden of Eden. Genesis begins in a garden paradise with the tree of life and the convergence of four rivers, but it ends in Revelation in a paradise garden in heaven with the tree of life once again and that river that flows from the throne of God. In the beginning, humanity is driven out of the garden paradise and forbidden to eat of the tree of life anymore, but it ends with an invitation to the garden paradise in the presence of God and we are compelled to eat of the tree of life in heaven with the Father. There are references throughout God's creation, uh, throughout God's word of God's creation. God has used his creative genius to bring, create word pictures to help us understand him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What images come to mind when you see that? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you, O Lord. What images come to mind? The righteous or the godly person is like a tree planted by the water, which yields its fruit in season. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. I mean, we go on and on and on. God's word has pictures and images of his creation throughout to help us create understanding as we connect with him. Now, on that assessment path, uh, pathway uh, that, that I took, uh, this was number two on my list. And I'm not surprised. There, there's something about nature and creation around me that draws me closer to the Lord and affirms my faith. From the majesty of a snow-capped mountain peak to the grace of a monarch butterfly, everything around me points me to God. Now, you probably know that I grew up in southern Indiana down the road here. My grandpa and grandma Connor had a small farm that was just about two miles due south of Holiday World as the crow flies, if that gives you some perspective. It was an awesome place for exploring. I loved taking walks with my grandfather through the woods and the fields because grandpa was always talking about everything, the trees and the flowers and the weeds and, and the vegetation. I learned so much. I, I, I learned about the different kinds of oaks. There's not just one. There's lots of different kinds of oaks. There's different kinds of pines. There's different kinds of maples. I learned to distinguish between the elm and the gum, the sycamore, the catalpa, the poplar, you name it, by the shape of their leaves and by the pattern of their bark. And uh, I so wish, I so wish I had paid better attention. Because now I'm trying to remember some of the things that I was taught and should have learned better. Because you see, I'm doing the same thing with my grandkids. I want them to be utterly amazed at God's creation around us. Have you ever stopped to think that God did not have to create so many different types of blooms and blossoms and scatter them throughout the growing season so that they're not blooming all at once, but that we get to enjoy God's creation throughout the growing season? Then we begin the springtime with the red buds and the dogwoods on the hillsides. And then there's different flowers that take us right into fall. And have you ever stopped to think about the fact that God didn't have to create such beauty with the dying leaves? That they could have all just turned brown, fallen off the tree, and that's, that's the end of the story. But no. In the fall of the year, in the autumn of the year, God, like an artist's palette, paints the hillsides of southern Indiana with the most gorgeous views 
in the bright colors of fall. It's like God is saying, there is beauty even in death. And I want you to know that as you see the dying leaves in their beauty, when the end of life comes for you here, there is more beauty beyond. I, I just love what God is teaching us through his creation. Isaiah the prophet in chapter 41 says, I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set pines in the wasteland and fir and cypress together so that, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. Oh, you walk through the woods and you smell the evergreen and you feel the coolness of the shade and you hear the birds singing overhead. What do you see when you walk through creation? What do you hear when you walk through God's creation? Do you sense his grandeur? During the summer after my freshman year in college, I did a, an internship for a month in, uh, in central Mexico. It was sort of in the, uh, it was a very uh, out of the way, back country kind of an area. And in the arid elevations of that mission, I saw the night sky as I had never seen it before. And honestly, folks, as I have never seen it since. I would go out in the, in the utter blackness of the dark, brave the scorpions, to gaze up into the heavens. I, I never saw so many stars in, in all of my life. I would stand there and just gaze into the sky. What do you see when you look up into the sky? Do you still look up in the sky? Do you still pause to, to, to find the Big Dipper or the Little Dipper? Do you look up on a cloudless night away from the lights of, of town to glimpse the grandeur of God. Do you know that God knows every star by name? The psalmist writes in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Nehemiah in his prayer prayed this, he said, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it and the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Isaiah the prophet again writes in chapter 40, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you look up into the sky and if you do, what do you see? Who do you see? Do you see his grandeur? Now let me take this opportunity to say thanks to you uh, on, on Elsie's behalf and my behalf for all of your prayers and your concerns. Uh, uh, after her um, uh, broken uh, hip, uh, leg, upper uh, neck of that femur part, uh, you've been so kind with cards and words of concern, encouragement, foods, and most of all your prayers. I am grateful. She is too. She wanted me to express that on her behalf this morning. But watching her go through this experience set me to thinking, how is it that a bone heals? 
How, how is it that you can break something so uh, integral to your structure and that it heals? This is what I've learned. By the way, I, I'm not a physician. I'm not, you know, I'm a medical student, so I, my, the pronunciation of these words may not be the way they're supposed to be. Just listen and overlook that. And if you're a, a doctor or a nurse after the service, you can freely c correct me, all right? And I would like to know. But this is what I've learned about the healing process. Within a couple hours of the initial break, a blood clot forms around the fracture. Inside the blood clot, special cells called phagocytes begin cleaning bone fragments and killing any germs that might have gotten around the break. Phagocytes are part of the immune system. The word phagocyte means cells that eat. So these cells are named after the way they surround and destroy or eat unwanted bacteria. Next, a soft callus made mostly of collagen is created around the fracture by another special group of cells called chondroblasts. This healing stage can last anywhere from a few days to three weeks. After that, a hard callus forms as osteoblast cells create new bone, adding minerals to make it hard. This stage typically begins two weeks after the break and ends somewhere between the sixth and the twelfth week. And lastly, the bone is remodeled. Special cells called osteoclasts break down extra bone around the fracture until it's completely healed and returned to its original shape. Bone remodeling is a slow process. It can take anywhere from three to nine years to complete. But the body keeps working until the restoration of that bone is 100% complete and supposedly as good as new. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. That, that's a very simplistic explanation to a very complex issue. All these different cells with all their different specialties, all created for the purpose of being able to heal the bone that is broken in your body. That God is going to restore. And what I, what I see in this is a picture of what God, the great physician, is doing to heal his creation. You see, sin broke a perfect design of God, but God had a plan of restoration Jesus sacrificed his life, and in the shedding of his blood that destroys our guilt and our sin, we see just that same picture of the blood clot eating away and chewing up the bacteria that would destroy us. God is at work slowly but surely, restoring us and his creation to the former majesty. And someday in his presence, we will be completely whole. No wonder the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. I believe God sprinkled into his creation some unique creatures that, well, I think they're there just to point us to him because you just can't find any other way to explain these parts of God's creation apart from this great, grand designer. I'm going to show you some pictures of the birds of paradise that are uh, unique to the island of New Guinea. 
there is a great video uh, that our license won't allow us to, to show this morning here. But if you want to go home and just Google the Birds of Paradise, uh, Cornell Ornithology Lab uh, produced this film and you can find it if you go online and and seeing it you know as you see these stills come up but seeing the actual pictures and hearing uh the sounds just it's just phenomenal the mating rituals the habits of these birds only only god could have been such a creative genius with this their ability to speak of a creator who has blessed this world with rare beauty and uniqueness to thrill our imaginations and point our hearts to him. And if these birds of the air don't amaze you, then let's go to the sea for just a moment. I, take, I want you to take a look at the pufferfish, probably best known because it, it blows up, you know, as a form of its protection. You may also know that it's one of the most venomous creatures uh, on the earth. Now, it, it doesn't inject venom if it would bite, but it's, it's venom is in its body. If you eat the meat, it, it'll kill you. The, the, the pufferfish's toxin is 1,200 times more, more deadly than cyanide. This is, you know, and uh, sometimes it's eaten as a delicacy if only people know how to cut it perfectly. What you probably don't know about the pufferfish is its artistic, exquisite ability. Take a look at this. Unfortunately, this small Japanese pufferfish is dull, almost to the point of invisibility. But to compensate, he is probably nature's greatest artist. To grab a female's attention, he creates something that almost defies belief. His only tools are his fins. In his head, a plan of mathematical perfection. He plows the sand, breaking it up into the finest of particles. These shells aren't just rubbish to be removed. He uses them to decorate the bridges of his construction. He can't rest for more than a moment, but must work 24 hours a day for a week, or the current will destroy his creation. Final tidy up, and his masterpiece is complete.
else in nature does an animal construct something as complex and perfect as this. If this doesn't get him noticed, nothing will. I don't know about you, but I can't watch that and not be drawn to a divine creator. I mean, as far as I know, my brain is at least bigger than the puffer fishes. But I couldn't create anything remotely close to that on the floor of the ocean with the tides and the, and the flowing water and the sands. I'm just utterly amazed at the creative genius of our God. I certainly wouldn't agree with everything that Ralph Waldo Emerson had to say, but I totally agree with this quote. All I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, folks, from what we can see in the grandeur of his creation, we have no excuse for not believing. So t taking what we've got here and, and what we've been talking about this morning, what, what are some conclusionary thoughts? Well, there, there are some cautions for those who, of us who are on the sensate and naturalist pathways. Here's, here's one thought. We must not allow our feelings to override God's word. Let me explain. When God clearly states that certain behaviors or certain choices are sin and run contrary to his will and purpose, we must not allow our feelings to dictate otherwise. When, the, when, when we say something like this, well, I know what the Bible says, but I feel this way, and, and I know God gave me this feeling, so it must be okay for me. That's dangerous ground. Don't fall into that trap. Feelings are fickle. They're up and down like a roller coaster. It can be just as disorienting. Feelings do not trump God's word. Here's another caution. Don't base your faith on your feelings. There will be days when you won't feel close to God. In your disappointment, your anger, your frustration, or your discouragement with life, or maybe with God himself, you may feel like God is a million miles away. He's not. The problem is with us, not with him. And on those days when you feel giddy with joy, don't forget that you need the Lord on those days as much as you need him in the dark valleys of life. So make certain your faith is built on something solid, the rock of ages, and not on the shifting sands of emotion. Here's another thought. The cathedral of God's creation is no substitute for involvement in his church. When I hear people say, I worship best outdoors, so my Sundays are spent in nature where I can truly commune with God. Well, it's fine to worship him in the midst of his creation and praise him for all that he has made. But that's no excuse for avoiding when the church comes together as his body in a spirit of worship. You see, there is time for both. There is private worship and there is corporate worship. We need both. And I think it's more of an excuse when we try to say, I don't need the corporate body. Oh, but we do. This journey that we're on, this journey we call life, is not about going it alone. Folks, in heaven, we read about choirs. We don't read about soloists. 
Maybe the scriptures are trying to remind us that we do this as a, as a group together. We don't do this as a solo act. We need each other. You see, there is something about being together, singing together, praying together, reading together, studying together, learning together that honors God and encourages us. Now, that doesn't take away from your private worship. That needs to happen as well. And if you are worshiping in the midst of God's creation, then make sure you're worshiping, okay? If you're hunting, fishing, picnicking, boating, hiking, or camping, that's not the same as worshiping. Well, I was fishing all day, and boy, was it a wonderful worship experience. I don't think so. I really like fishing, but when I'm fishing, I'm fishing. Okay, I'm not, I'm not worshiping. The focus has to be on the worship. So take a walk in the woods or go by the, a stroll along the lakeside. Spend time praising God for who he is. Stop and pray. Maybe sing a song. Worshiping him and his creation is good. Just make sure it's worship because that glorifies God. And then there are some challenges for all of us to embrace on this sensate naturalist pathway. Can I remind you this morning, don't get stuck in the hectic routines of life and forget to experience all that God has designed for us. Engage your senses. Live life to the fullest every day. Get out of the house and go for a walk outside. Put down your technology and embrace God's creation. Get away from the city lights on a clear night and stare into the heavens and see how many stars you can, you can count with the naked eye. And then, and then remember that God knows every one of them by name. And all the billions of stars in the countless numbers of galaxies that you can't see with your naked eye. Study nature. Take time to study nature. Let its uniqueness draw you to the creator who loves you more than life itself. Check out creation.com, why don't you? You want to learn a little bit more about some of this? Go to creation.com. Be observant. Open your eyes and ears. Don't miss the beauty that is around us. Take time to smell the roses. Literally. Today, go find a rose and, and, and take a, 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 a sweet smell. Or maybe some lilac or or maybe some lavender, or maybe the flocks that are in bloom. The fragrance that come out of these flowers is just astounding. Stop and listen to the birds today. When's the last time you really stopped and heard the birds? I mean, come on. When, when did you stop and listen to the birds singing in your, in your backyard lately? How many birds can you identify by their song? Can you identify any? Because God gave them different songs. And then realize, realize how Jesus encouraged and challenged our lives in this world by using the simple elements of creation to teach us some of the most important truths ever. I'm going to close by reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and following. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? <clears throat> Look at the birds. The birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And who of you, can, uh, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies, there's the flowers. See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that's how God closes the clothes, the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, 
oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Watch the birds. Watch the flowers. Don't worry. The creator is still on his throne. His grandeur is still visible everywhere we go. He's still in charge forever. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.